The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. He's the former personal finance columnist at the Wall Street Journal and the author of a book called Jonathan Clements' Money Guide 2016. You can also find out more about him at his website, jonathanclements.com. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Jordan, it's great to be with you. So I talked a little bit, but just kind of give a longer version of your bio and and your expertise in this area. Well, I spent... uh more than three decades writing and thinking about money. For 24 of those years, I've been a financial journalist, mostly at the Wall Street Journal, but also at Forbes magazine and at a little magazine in London. And then I spent another six years as director of financial education for City Personal Wealth Management, which meant I spent six years on the dark side. Um, So between those two, I have a pretty good sense of Wall Street. I've, I've covered it as a journalist, and I've also seen it from the inside. Very good. Uh, so let's start with the current situation of the markets. We've had a dramatic drop in the markets in the first part of 2016. To what do we attribute that, and how should the average investor who's freaking out right now uh, handle it as far as his asset allocation? That's a great question, Jordan. There are a lot of things that have been blamed for the decline in the market. I mean, people have talked about what's going on in North Korea, what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in China. But when you dig deep into this, what you discover is the real concern is what's happening to global growth. Will we get a slowdown in global growth? Because if that happens, it's going to affect corporate earnings. And if corporate earnings grow more slowly or even decline, then stocks will appear to be more overvalued than they are. And hence, that's why we're getting the sell-off. So since the, uh, the market peaked, we're off something over 10%. That's what on Wall Street they call a correction. The thing that investors need to realize is this, that even though stocks have declined by more than 10%, it would be hard to argue that this stock market is cheap. By almost any metric you look at, the stock market is expensive. So while there may be some great buying opportunity down the road, I would argue that it doesn't exist today. So there's something called the CAPE ratio, which is the Robert Schiller index of what's called cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. Tell me what that is and what is that showing on on the current valuation of the market now? Economists uh, Robert Schiller and John Campbell developed this uh, measure back in the 1980s. And what it does is it takes earnings for corporations from the past 10 years, adjusts the earlier earnings for inflation, and then compares it to current share prices. And what you do by using cyclically adjusted price earnings ratios is you smooth out earnings over time so that when we get those temporary dips in earnings that occur during recessions, they're sort of, you know, they're mellowed out and they don't have that big an impact. And thus we can get a better sense for how richly valued stocks are. So if you look back over the past 50 years, the so-called Schiller PE has averaged around 19.7 times earnings. Today, 
we're trading at somewhere between 23 and 24 times earnings. So we are substantially above uh, the average historical valuation for stocks based on the Schiller PE. And indeed, to get to a level where stocks are at an average valuation, we'd probably have to see the market decline another 15 or 20 percent. So long term, does it make sense when uh, valuations are rich to avoid the stock market, be more in bonds and cash, wait it out till it comes back down, and then buy them when they're more fairly valued, or is that not a good strategy? Well, it's not a good strategy for two reasons, Jordan. I mean, first, valuations, while crucial in driving stock returns, are by no means the sole determinant of the market's performance. So Vanguard did a study a couple of years ago, and what they found was that P.E. ratios, both the standard P.E. ratio using 12-month earnings and also the Schiller P.E. using 10 years of earnings, only determined 40% of the stock market's performance over the next 10 years. So it's entirely possible that we could get good performance from the stock market, even from this lofty level. And second, the other reason why you shouldn't abandon stocks is because even if the market has a rough spell from here, we might have a bad 2016 for stocks. The fact is, for most of us, our investment time horizon is a lot longer than a single year. I mean, take my own example. I'm age 53. You know, according to the actuarial tables, you know, I probably will live until my late 80s. That means that I have another 35 years to go. Moreover, I hope that I will not die painless and that part of my stock portfolio will pass to my children. Um, who might live another 30 years longer than, than I do. As a consequence, my investment time horizon might be reasonably be considered you know, somewhere between 35 and 65 years. What happens this year, what happens next year, what happens the year after that is immaterial in the big picture. Now, it may be easy to say that, but there's also an el- emotional element in investing and right now, with the markets dropping sharply, not only in the U.S., but in China and Europe and emerging markets even more dramatically than in the U.S., people have a tendency to panic. What do you tell people who are going through emotional turmoil uh, when they see the markets falling? They're worried this is going to be 2008 all over again. What do you tell people like that? It's a great question, Jordan. What I would say to people today is you should sit down and look at the investment mix that you have. What percentage of your portfolio is in stocks, what percentages in bonds, what percentages in cash investments like savings accounts, CDs, money market funds, and what percentages in alternative investments like real estate investment trusts and gold stocks and hedge funds. If you look at that mix and you're not comfortable with it and you think that you might panic and sell if the market drops further, I would suggest that it's far better to panic and sell at today's prices than when the market is 20% lower than it is today. If you truly are taking more risk than you're comfortable with, I would look to trim back the amount of risk that you take. That said, if you don't think you're going to panic and sell, then I would stick with it. I mean, you you know, the fact is prices are down more than 10% from their peak, so this is not a great time to be selling, but people should keep in mind that things could get worse yet. Now, you are a believer in dividend stocks, and particularly there's a new uh, Vanguard fund out that has high dividends. Is that a potential refuge in a violent market, is to have uh, high dividend stocks? If so, how would you play that? Well, history tells us that in a declining market, 
uh, high dividend stocks tend to hold up better than the broad market. So they are a defensive stock position. Nonetheless, they are stocks. So in a market decline, you know, if the broad market goes down 20%, maybe you'll only lose 17%. Uh, that may be, you know, scant comfort to people who are nervous about the stock market and find it hard to stomach market declines. Nonetheless, I think a high dividend strategy is a reasonable long-term strategy for two reasons. One is academic research tells us that so-called value stocks tend to perform better over the long haul, and high dividend stocks would count as value stocks. And two, I believe that having to pay that regular dividend makes corporations more careful in the way they use their cash, and as a shareholder, you'll benefit from that. Because management has to figure out some way to pay that 3% dividend every year, they're going to be a lot more careful about the capital projects they take on. They're going to be more thoughtful about how much they pay in employee compensation. And all in all, it should be good for you as a shareholder. One of the big drivers of the markets these days, uh, and with what have been the high dividend stocks, are oil stocks, and oil in particular, which has gone from well over $100 a barrel now into the mid-20s. Is that something you were expecting, and what do you think is going to happen with oil, and what's the impact of that on the overall market? Yeah, Jordan, my crystal ball is extremely, extremely cloudy. No, I had no clue that oil prices were going to drop from $100 a barrel to $30. But frankly, I don't know of anybody else who was predicting that either. In fact, I remember people arguing that you know the next move for oil was going to go from $100 to $200. So the lesson for, for people who are listening to the show is this, you know, you should take any forecast you hear with a grain of salt. You know, you should base your investment strategy on something other than a prediction of the market's short-term performance. You know, I encourage people to think not about what they think is going to happen to stocks or bonds over the short term, but how much risk they can reasonably tolerate, what it means for their investment tax bill and what it means for the investment costs they incur. If people spend less time focusing on performance and more time focusing on risk, taxes, and costs, they would make a lot more money over the long haul. Now, you're a big believer in index funds. Uh, has recent performance uh, proved that out to be a smart thing compared to actively managed funds? Some are saying that when the market falls, there are no brakes or parachutes on index funds. You'll get creamed, whereas actively managed funds could go to more defensive stocks or cash to protect you. What, what is the outlook for index funds in a declining market? If you own an index fund and the underlying index declines, you will lose exactly the same amount of money. You know, index funds will give you whatever the market delivers. And in a market decline, that might seem like an unhappy prospect. But the fact is, over the long haul, index funds are the place to be. We have reams and reams of data that show that actually managed mutual funds underperform index mutual funds. And, you know, you don't even need the statistics to tell you that. You know, all you need is the brutal logic of investing. Before costs, investors collectively earn the performance of the market averages. After costs, investors are going to earn less. If you buy index funds and simply, simply mimic the performance of the market at the rock-bottom annual expenses, you will collect the market's performance minus a very small amount in costs. 
Meanwhile, the typical actively managed fund with as much higher annual expenses is going to lag the market by far more. If you're a long-term investor, index funds are the place to be. There may be one or two years when actively managed funds perform better, but you can be pretty sure that over the long haul, you are unlikely to outperform the market with actively managed funds. As I like to tell people, there's a reason we talk about Warren Buffett with his 50-year record of outperforming the market. And the reason is this. He's the only one. I don't know of anybody else with a 50-year record of outperforming the market. And what do you think of index mutual funds versus exchange-traded funds or other ways of doing indexing these days? Are there pros and cons of those? What it really comes down to, Jordan, is what investment strategy you're, you're pursuing. If you have a large lump sum that you're going to invest in the market and you don't plan to regularly add or withdraw from those investments, then exchange-traded funds are probably the way to go because you'll pay you know, one commission and you'll have you know, one set of trading costs when you initially enter the position and after that, nothing more. If you think that you will be regularly adding to your portfolio or regularly making withdrawals, index mutual funds make more sense because you'll avoid those trading costs associated with exchange-traded index funds and thus even though index funds tend to charge slightly more per year than um, exchange-traded funds, index mutual funds will be a better bet. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. He's the author of a new book called The Jonathan Clements Money Guide 2016. You can find out more about him at his website, jonathanclements.com, and you can get the book at amazon.com. We'll be back after this. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Leadership Hour explores what it takes to become a leader who inspires. Inspirational leaders drive higher creativity, lower turnover, and better quality work. Yet few understand their impact on others. We are blind to what we do and don't do well. Training can help, but only if we know our blind spots. To hear strategies for becoming an inspirational leader, join Christine Cowan Gascoigne on the Leadership Hour, where leadership and inspiration intersect. Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. With co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass, Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. 
He's the former personal finance editor at the Wall Street Journal. He's the author of a book called Jonathan Clement's Money Guide 2016, which you can get at Amazon.com, and you can see more about Jonathan at his website, JonathanClements.com. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. It's great to be with you, Jordan. So you have a lot of things in your book. I'm going to kind of go through a, get a, a sense of some of them here, uh, starting with retirement. Um, so w- what are some of the mistakes people make in thinking about retirement? They, they tend to underestimate how long they're going to last, how much money they need. What are some of the things they do wrong, and how should they do it right in planning for retirement? I think the first mistake that people make when they think about retirement is thinking that they can get around to saving for retirement later. When you think about your financial life and you're in your 20s, you know you might imagine that you have three big financial goals ahead of you. You want to, uh, you know, raise a family and put the kids through college. You want to buy a home, and you want to save for retirement. And so what a lot of people do is they end up dealing with their financial goals consecutively. And what I mean by that is, you know, people get into their 30s and they save and save and save for the house down payment. Finally, you know, they buy that house and then they say, oh boy, we've got to put the kids through college. So in their 40s, they save and save for college and they pay those big tuition bills. And finally, you know, they're age 50. They got the kids through college. They're exhausted and they're like, okay, what's next? Oh, Yeah retirement. Oh, shoot. Because age 50, it's too late. 10 or 15 years simply isn't enough time to save for retirement. If you're going to amass the substantial sum you need to retire in comfort, you need to regularly save for at least three decades and possibly four. Saving for retirement should be your top financial priority from the day you enter the workforce. It may be your last financial goal chronologically, but in terms of financial priorities, it should be at the top of the list. So how do you do that? If you need a down payment for a house, uh, a lot of people go into debt for their kids' college education. How do you prioritize retirement over these other things which seem more pressing? One of the uh, things I do, Jordan, when I'm not uh, writing books is I, I teach a college course on uh, personal finance. And when the kids you know, first start the course and we talk about financial priorities, they are very focused on the short term. They, all, they tell me about the expensive cars they want to buy. They tell me about how they don't want their kids to have to take on student loans. And they never, ever mention retirement. That's the last thing on their mind um, at age you know, 20, 22. So how can you make retirement a priority? Well, I think there are a couple of things you should think about. First of all, you know, even though you know, we're typically advised to save 10 or 15% of income every year towards retirement, you know, even if you can save 5 or 6% in your 20s, that's a great start. Remember, in your 20s, you may not have a lot of spare cash, but you do have time, which is just as valuable. Even modest sums invested in the financial markets in your 20s can turn into huge sums by the time you're in your 60s thanks to the process of investment compounding. Second, even if you can, if you can manage to save that 5 or 6% in your 20s toward retirement and you work at an employer that has a 401k plan or a 403b plan where there's a matching employer contribution, by making even that modest contribution to your 401k plan, you can get that matching contribution. The biggest financial mistake that people make 
is failing to contribute enough to a 401k to get the full employer match, you really ought to be doing that because that is free money. So save what you can for retirement in your 20s. And meanwhile, you know, put money towards a house down payment, put money towards the kids' college education. But what you need to realize is everything is a financial trade-off. If you save everything towards a house down payment because you really want to buy that huge big house, you know, you're going to have to retire that much later. You know, if you decide that you're going to fully fund your children's college education, in all likelihood, you're going to have to retire somewhat later. You cannot do it all. So you need to think about your finances very clearly, very rationally, and make a decision about what your financial priorities are and realize what the consequences are if you favor some of these more immediate goals like a house down payment and college costs over a longer term goal like retirement. So what should you plan on as far as life expectancy? People are living longer these days, but that means you have to have more money put aside. What kind of life expectancy should people put into their plans? And then once they get to that level, how can they earn a decent level of income with interest rates where they are today on safe alternatives, which are pretty much zero at CDs and money funds? When people look at life expectancy, they often get confused. A lot of people look at life expectancy as of birth. Um, for instance, you know, if you were if you're turning 65 today, um, which means that you, know, you were born, you know, back in the 1950s, you know, your life expectancy at birth would probably have been somewhere in the late 70s. But once you reach age 65, your life expectancy at that juncture is actually going to be significantly longer because life expectancy as of age 65 is different from that as of birth because the, the as-of-birth life expectancies are dragged down by all those people who don't live to retirement age. So if you have life expectancy as of age 65, currently, you know, a man is expected to live until age 84 or age 85, and a woman is expected to live until age 87 or age 88. Moreover, those are figures for the broad population. You know, one of the things that uh, has been a subject of a lot of discussion in the press of late, and you can see it in the numbers, is that if you are, you know, a middle-class person, you know, from an affluent background who's looked after their health, your life expectancy is going to be at least two or three years longer than that, which means that there's a good chance that you'll make it to age 90. And you have to remember, if you're married, so it's both a husband and a wife, you have two tickets to the life expectancy lottery, and there's a very good chance that one of you will make it well into your 90s. So, yeah, when you're age 65, you're probably looking at having to make sure your money lasts for as, for as long as 30 years. And you have to say to yourself, so what's going what's gonna to provide me with that sort of income stream that will get me through to the end of my life? And the top priority priority for people who are in their 60s, the top financial priority, I would argue, is to delay Social Security so they get the largest possible monthly check. Social Security is the best stream of retirement income any of us will ever get. It's government guaranteed, it's at least partially tax-free, and you will get it for the rest of your life, and it increases every year along with inflation, plus your spouse may inherit your Social Security benefit as a survivor benefit. There are a slew of great reasons to delay Social Security and get a larger check. If, I would, if any people want to take away one thing from listening to this show, 
that would be it. Yet a lot of people do not do that. A lot of people t take it the first moment they can get it at 62, right? Absolutely. The figures tell us that almost half of all retirees claim Social Security at age 62, the earliest possible age, when in fact, if they delayed benefits until age 70, they would get a benefit that's 60, 76 or 77% larger in real inflation-adjusted terms. Yeah. And so, so that's Social Security. But how about, say they've done the right thing, they've saved a lot of money. Uh, they want to live a long time, have a decent lifestyle, but their money in the bank is literally earning nothing. What should they do uh, to earn, uh, you know, kind of a conservative income in today's environment? One of the hoary financial principles is that you should never, ever dip into capital and that, you know, you should only ever spend your income, whether it's the dividend from stocks or the interest paid by your bonds. It's time to throw that old principle out the window. In today's low-yield world, it is simply impossible to live off the income from a portfolio unless you're super, super wealthy and have relatively low income needs. Instead, in managing your retirement portfolio, what you need to do is to take a total return approach. And what I mean by that is that you should aim to earn a reasonable rate of return and then look to sell part of your holdings every year and use that to cover your living expenses. So a strategy I recommend to a lot of people is you think about how much money you're going to need from your portfolio over the next five years. And you take that money and you get it out of stocks, and you get it out of riskier bonds, and you put it into CDs, savings accounts, money market funds, short-term high-quality bonds. Now, having done that, you know exactly where you're spending money from your portfolio is going to come for the next five years. That frees you up to invest the rest of your portfolio for long-run growth. If you get a good year in the financial markets, you can sell some of your stocks and replenish that cushion of cash that you created. If you have a bad year in the financial markets, which 2016 may well be, then you just sit tight, you let your stocks ride, and you wait until the market recovers before you do any selling. There is the traditional 4% withdrawal rule. Is that still true today as far as withdrawing 4% of your principal a year for, in retirement? Well, first of all, let's talk about what that 4% withdrawal rule represents. Um, there was a famous study back in the 1990s by a financial planner called Bill Bangin, and what he found was that if you wanted to make it through a 30-year retirement without running out of money, the, a reasonable withdrawal rate was 4%, which meant in the first year of retirement, you could withdraw 4% of however much you'd saved. And then in subsequent years, you could step up the amount that you pulled out of that portfolio along with inflation. When you think about what that 4% is, that is literally 4% of the beginning of year balance. You know, If you get interest payments, you get dividend payments, that counts towards the money you withdraw each year. Is the 4% rule a good rule? Um, it's been questioned a lot. Um, recently, there was another study that suggested the uh, uh, safe withdrawal rate is just 2.85%. Just 2.85%. You know, the numbers get a little bit crazy. I mean, the fact is, very few of us have enough money to live off 2.85% of it each year. It's just way too low. I think that people could reasonably withdraw 5% a year, but but if we get really bad financial markets, what you have to do is stand ready to slash the amount you would draw from your portfolio and slash the amount that you're spending. 
Instead of going to Paris that year, you go to the New Jersey Shore, whatever it is to reduce your spending. You know, people have this great financial lever, which is their ability to raise and lower their spending depending upon their financial conditions. You know, people do that during their working career all the time. If they end up out of work, they cut the amount they spend. Similarly, in retirement, we get bad financial markets. You should look to reduce your spending. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. He's the former personal finance editor at the Wall Street Journal for many years. Uh, he has written a book called Jonathan Clements' Money Guide 2016. Uh, you can find out more about that book at Amazon.com and Jonathan at his website, JonathanClements.com. We'll be back after this. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. If you're interested in gaining strategies to be more successful both at work and your personal life, check out Turn the Page with host Hemda Mizrahi. It's all about building new habits and perspectives. The show helps you identify the changes you need to make that align with your values and priorities. And then apply these principles to your career, health, social life, and other areas. These are proven techniques that work. Turn the Page airs live Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. You have a message. You want to share that message. You want it to be social, to go viral, and spread across the planet. But how do you get started? Tune into Amplify, featuring host Ken Roshan and co-host Gisela Gonzalez. This show is here to help you take that message and channel it through the most effective marketing techniques to not only be successful, but have a positive impact on the world. Tune in live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel, and get Amplified. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Jonathan Clements, former personal finance editor at The Wall Street Journal. His website, jonathanclements.com. His book is called Jonathan Clements' Money Guide 2016, which you can get at Amazon. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. It's good to be with you, Jordan. So let's talk about uh, real estate and housing. Uh, so in general, the real estate market's been holding up pretty well. Uh, some parts of it, there's actually a shortage of supply of inventory. Interest rates are very low on mortgages. What are some things you should be looking for in the real estate and housing market in 2016? When people think about buying a home or trading up to a larger house, 
they should think very clearly about what the financial benefits are of making that step. You know, there are all kinds of financial myths out there when it comes to housing. It's a, it's a big source of confusion, and that's not entirely surprising because there are so many different moving parts. When you think about houses, you know, you've got the mortgage there, you've got that mortgage interest, which is tax deductible, you have the price appreciation, you have this notion of home equity and what counts as your home equity, you know, you, get, you have the fact that you get to live in the house. So how would you make sense of all of that? And what I would say to people is that when you think about buying a home, what you really need to think about is that this is a purchase that straddles the line between investment and consumption. Essentially, there are two parts of the return from a house. First, there is the price appreciation. And in a sense, that is the investment return. But historically, it hasn't been a very good investment. Over the long haul, home prices have increased at just about the rate of inflation. So after inflation, you haven't made any money. Moreover, once you figure in all the expenses associated with owning a home, the regular maintenance, the property taxes, the homeowner's insurance, once you figure in all those expenses, you're actually underwater relative to inflation. So as an investment, a home is not a great one. But it is does provide you with a place to live, and that's the consumption aspect. And in many ways, the biggest part of the return from home ownership is the ability to live in your own home. So if you think about um, a home, you know, the price appreciation may be 3% a year before inflation, before cost. Meanwhile, the value of being able to live in there is something like 7% a year. And how do I get that 7% number? Well, if you want to think about the value that you get by living in your own home, think about how much you could rent out your home for. If you if you run the numbers, you'll probably find you could rent your house each year for something like 7% of its current value. You get 7% of it in income. The problem is, you know, you're not getting that rental income. Instead, you're the one that's consuming it. And that's why I say, when you think about a house, it really straddles that line between investment and consumption. On the investment side, what do you think about rental properties? A lot of people have been buying homes, um, renting them out, not only individuals, but institutions and BlackRock and all kinds of hedge funds are buying entire neighborhoods and renting them out. Is that something the average individual should try to get into as a a source of income? Um, You probably get the same mail I do, Jordan. I get emails all the time from readers who tell me that, you know, they've made substantial money by buying rental properties, uh, you know, and you know, it's it is indeed, it has indeed been a road to wealth for many ordinary Americans. The thing I would caution people about is that when you buy rental properties, what you're doing is making a large, undiversified bet on one or two different apartments or one or two different homes, and thus, you know, if you end up making the wrong choice or you end up with the wrong tenants, things can unravel pretty fast. That's why I'm not a fan of buying rental properties. I've seen the numbers, I know they work, but things can go south pretty quickly. If, if, if things go, you know, if you end up out of work, you end up with a tenant who doesn't pay the rent and so on. That's why I would caution people against, you know, going the rental property route, even though I do realize that it can be a moneymaker. 
Let's go to another topic in your book, which is college. Uh, you, you say it's a real education, especially for the parents. What do you mean by that? When people are getting to college and filling out the FAFSA form, are they surprised at what the expected family contribution is? Or what, what are some things people should prepare themselves so they're not shocked when they get to the college financing process? Uh, the expected family contribution is a great place to start. If you go to the College Board website, they have something called the EFC calculator. EFC stands for expected family contribution. And what that represents is the amount of money that the family each year is expected to put towards college costs. If you have a kid who's approaching college age, I would strongly encourage you to go to the College Board website and play around with that EFC calculator to see how much your family may be expected to put towards college costs. I think that you will be shocked. A lot of people are horrified to discover how much you know, they're meant to cough up each year. You know, there's this myth out there that you know, financial aid is readily available and that you know, many middle-class families get it. It simply isn't true. You know, if you have a reasonable income, you know, there's a good chance that you will get little or no financial aid. And most of the cost you know, will have to be paid either out of current income, out of savings, or by taking on college loans. That's why we see the typical undergraduate you know, um, leaving college with something like $30,000 in college loans these days. You know, they aren't getting the big scholarships that the parents imagine and the, the myths suggest are available. Where is it better to save? In the student's name, like in a Uniform Gifts to Myers Act account? In the parent's name, inside a 529 plan? If you're going to save for college when the kid is younger, what is the best place to save tax-wise as far as qualifying for financial aid? Yeah, back in the 1990s, uh, it used to be the parents would open up these custodial accounts um, set up under their states, Uniform Gifts to Minus Act or Uniform Transfer to Minus Act because you know, you've got a modest tax break. Today, that is not the right way to go. Uh, thanks to the introduction of 529 college savings plans, you know, 529 plans are the best choice for people who want to save for college. Uh, with a 529 college savings plan, you may get some state tax benefits. But the most important thing is the growth in that account is going to be tax-free as long as the money is used for college costs. In addition, in the financial aid formulas, 529 plans are typically considered to be a parental asset, which means that they are assessed far less harshly the money that's in the child's name. If you open a custodial account for your child, that will count as a child's asset. and It will be assessed very heavily under the financial aid formula. Having said all of that, if you don't have a substantial income, if you play around with the EFC calculator at the College Board website and find that you will indeed qualify for a fair amount of financial aid, I wouldn't fund a 529 plan. I wouldn't fund a custodial account. Instead, I would look to use use that money um, to pay down your mortgage, to fund your own retirement accounts, whatever, you know, because that way the money won't be assessed at all when it comes to college financial aid. If you really don't have a high income, that's the way to go. When you get to college, a lot of people taking on, the average is 30000 in debt, but a lot of people, 50, 100, 150000 you know, huge amounts of debts both for the, in the child's name, in the parents, Parent PLUS loans, and now I'm seeing even lately in grandparents' name. Grandparents are borrowing against their 
IRAs and home equity loans to, to help the grandchildren. What can one do if you haven't saved enough to avoid becoming wildly over-indebted by the time the kid graduates? Jordan, I, this is an issue I feel pretty strongly about. I, I do believe that a lot of parents are failing their college-bound children. Now, I understand that parents can't necessarily save for college, and that's understandable. I mean, you know, we've had rough economic times here in the U.S., but even if you can't help your kids financially, you can help them with good financial advice. If you have a kid who's going to go to college and you're not going to be able to help them financially, and the kid is not going to end up, in all likelihood, in a career that's going to earn him or her a lot of money, you should counsel that child not to go to an expensive private college. It is insane to go to an expensive private college, take on $100,000 of debt, and then imagine that you're somehow going to be able to pay back those loans once you're a social worker. It just simply isn't going to happen. So the first thing the parents should think about doing is talking to their kids about how much they can help with college costs and about how much in loans it makes sense for the kids to take on given their expected career. And if the number is high, if the kid is going to have to take on a large amount of college loans, if they go to a private college or even if they go straight to a state university, then you might talk about, talk about alternative strategies. You might, the kid might go to a community college for the first two years and then transfer to a state university might try to find a state university that's close to where you can live so that the kid can live at home. If you look at uh, the cost of state universities, room and board is almost half of the cost of a state university. So living at home can save your child substantial amounts of money. So you're not valuing the, the college experience as much and staying out all night, getting drunk and frat parties and things. that You don't think that's a good value for your money? Well, it was actually a lot of fun for me, George. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I do actually think that that is, you know, that, you know, all the extracurricular activities, not necessarily getting, you know, completely wasted, but all the extracurricular activities at college, you know, sports events, you know, going to theater, going to debates, all those are indeed a crucial part of the college experience. But, you know, you know how much are you going to pay for that experience? You know, you do not want to send your kids out into the world burdened with so much debt that the rest of their life is going to be miserable. So one alternative that people are doing today is online education, where they can literally get the same lectures at MIT or Stanford, wherever it may be, uh, without having the, the cost of uh, doing things in person. Do you think online education is uh, legitimate today and is going to become more so? Well, clearly is legitimate, uh, Jordan. Um, but as somebody who, you know, who does teach a college course, I got to tell you, you know, the ability to be in the classroom and interact with the kids um, is hugely valuable. And you know, I'm not sure that it's really the same experience. You know, if you're doing it online. So you you would you still think it's more worth it to take on the debts and so on of doing it in person because you're going to get more out of it than an online course. I think so, but again, you know, there are ways to manage the cost. You know, as I mentioned, going to community college initially and then transferring to the university from which you're going to graduate, um, living at home for maybe the first couple of years and then living on campus, you know, whatever it takes to keep the costs under control. Will college costs continue to grow as they have been for so long at a higher rate than inflation, or is there going to be an inflection point where they just can't keep doing that? 
It's a really good question. I mean, people have been complaining about college costs for years in the same way they've been complaining about health costs, and yet both of those keep rising faster than inflation. And in a sense, you know, there's a good reason for that, which is that, you know, the biggest, the big, you know, component of healthcare costs and a big component of college costs are the costs of the employees involved, you know, the doctors and nurses, the college professors and the administrators. And, you know, when you think about the cost associated with an employee, that cost doesn't rise at the inflation rate. Instead, the cost of salaries and related benefits rises somewhat faster than inflation every year because standard livings rise not at the inflation rate, but at the rate of per capita GDP. And per capita GDP typically increases a couple of percentage points a year faster than inflation. So if you have a labor-intensive field like college education, like healthcare, what you're going to see is that the, one of the core costs, the costs of the employees, is always going to rise faster than inflation, and hence it's hard for the cost of college and the cost of healthcare not to rise faster than inflation. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements former Wall Street Journal uh, personal finance editor, has come out with a book called Jonathan Clements' Money Guide 2016, which you can get at Amazon.com, and you can see his website at JonathanClements.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan Clements. He's the former personal finance editor at The Wall Street Journal. His book is called Jonathan Clements' Money Guide 2016. Uh, which you can get at Amazon. You can also find out more about him at his website, jonathanclements.com. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Good to be with you, Jordan. So let's talk about taxes. So we haven't had that many tax changes lately, 
But let's talk about the political situation here. There's radical changes uh, proposed by both the Democrats and Republicans. Republicans wanting to cut taxes of all kinds. Democrats wanting to raise marginal rates. Bernie Sanders as high as 90%. So what do you think is the outlook for tax policy going forward here? Well, let's put it in historical context, Jordan. If you go back to 1986, we had that great tax reform bill that passed during the Reagan administration. It was a bipartisan bill. And what we ended up with was a substantially simpler tax code. That was 1986. In the decades since, what we've seen is that the tax code has become increasingly junked up with special deductions, special credits, new taxes, new uh, tax favored savings accounts for college, for retirement, and so on. You know, we've got to the point where nobody can do their taxes, you know, with a calculator and a pencil anymore. You know, most people are either using the software or they're just turning it over to an accountant or a tax preparer. That's how complicated the tax code has become. Certainly, you know, I used to be able to do my taxes with a, you know, a pen and a piece of paper and a calculator. No way I could do that now. The tax code is just too complicated. And both Democrats and Republicans realize that, and there is growing pressure to simplify the tax code. I suspect that in 2017, we will see a major tax bill, and that tax bill will likely involve significant simplification of the tax code, which is one of the reasons why the election this year is so crucial. You know, whoever wins is going to determine what that simplification looks like, and you know, depending on you know, what, what you would like to see, you, know, you should cost your vote accordingly. Let me take you both directions. Let's say a Republican wins and has a Republican Congress. What kind of a tax changes do you think you might see in 2017? I think what we would see in uh, 2017 is a reduction in the number of tax brackets. We had a number of candidates talking about, you know, right now we have seven different tax brackets talking about trying to reduce the number of tax brackets. I think that we would see a number of the deductions and credits disappear. I think the only deduction that will prove to be, you know, sacred is the mortgage interest tax deduction. Every time that one gets mentioned as going on the chopping block, there's a huge outcry. But on that, I think pretty much everything is fair game. So like they, they're talking about getting rid of deductions and credits, lowering the marginal rates, and, and making it simpler to some extent. So that's if the Republicans. So that's taking you the other direction now. Let's say the Democrats win with a Democratic Congress. What would happen to taxes then? I think what we would probably see is you know, an increase in the, uh, you know, the top marginal rate. Clearly, there's a great concern about income inequality among Democrats, and they would like to see the wealthier paying higher rates. I think that, you know, um, this is a little, little bit nerdy, but there's something called the, uh, the carried interest um, concern, which relates to hedge funds and how hedge fund managers and other money managers are paid. I think that, you know, that loophole will go away. Uh, there's also been talk about expanding the child tax credit. We could see that increase. Uh, one way or another, I think that there would be some step taken to try and reduce the tax burden on the poorest Americans if a Democrat was elected. So, but okay. Remember, so even we're not, we have to talk about not just the presidential race, because even if um, we end up with a, an, another Democratic president, you know, what happens to the House and what happens to the Senate is going to, you know, 
limit what they're able to do, it's much more likely at this point that you know a Republican presidential candidate would have free reign because you know the Republicans already control the House and Senate. If a Democrat wins, we may have another you know divided uh, Washington, and thus you know the room for maneuver will be substantially less. So considering that situation, you have kind of an alternate realities, but <laughs> two different directions. How should one plan for taxes going forward, considering this uncertainty uh, in the market? I think that what people should cons- think about are really two, two different issues. I mean, first of all, yeah, there's, a, there's the old phrase, I'm sure you know, you've heard it, Jordan, that you shouldn't let, you know, the tax tail wag the investment dog. You shouldn't be doing anything simply for tax reasons. Instead, you should figure out what the right thing to be doing with your finances is, and then find out you know, what way you can do it while minimizing the tax hit. So let's say, for instance, a, a Democrat is elected and we see an increase in the capital gains tax rate. Uh, that might suggest that you, know, you, know, you should, as soon as a Democrat is elected, you know, sell your stocks to pay capital gains taxes today at a lower rate. But if you plan to hold those holdings for a long time anyway, why would you accelerate that tax bill? I mean, who knows, you know, what the tax situation will be 10 years down the road. There's no point in rushing to sell your investment winners because you think the capital gains tax rate is going up. Another issue out there is what's going to happen with, you know, traditional retirement accounts and tax-free Roth accounts you know, which one you should favor. And what I would say to people is probably what you want to do is have tax diversification, have some of your money in traditional IRAs and traditional 401ks and have some of your money in Roth 401ks and Roth IRAs. That way, no matter what happens to the tax code, you'll probably be in a pretty good situation. In about a minute or so we have left, why don't you just kind of sum up what kind of year you think this is going to be in 2016 and what are, what are some of the basic strategies people can use to prosper in what could be a very rocky year? I think there's a good chance it's going to be a rocky year because there's so much uncertainty about economic growth. But remember, you know, what drives the stock market in the short term are all the traders and money managers and stock analysts who are worried about performance of the next 12 months. This will be a year when it pays to be a truly long-term investor, somebody who can look beyond, you know, the peaks and valleys in the stock market and hold on for the long haul. If we do indeed get a big dip in the market, you know, one of the best strategies is simply save more. If you save more, you'll take advantage of those lower prices, and you'll have more money for retirement and for your other financial goals. Very good. Well, thank you so much. My guest this hour has been Jonathan Clements. He's the former personal finance editor at The Wall Street Journal. His book is called Jonathan Clements' Money Guide 2016, which you can get at Amazon.com. And you can also see more wisdom from Jonathan at his website, jonathanclements.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Jonathan. It's my pleasure. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks 
again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 